some of those images, and I'm wanting you to just kind of look at them and try to imagine with me a time when everything's going pretty well. Work was satisfying, you were enjoying your downtime, relationships were all more or less stable, and you even had a few things to look forward to. And then, something completely unexpected happened. Looking back, you think, I probably should have seen this coming. There were signs. But at the time, you were caught totally unaware. It is so disruptive. It has so upended your life. Just try to imagine this, that you gather your whole family and you hunker down home, and there you stay. Try to imagine that. A time when something so awful has happened that you don't dare leave your house, not even for work or school. And you wake up each morning and you hope your real life will have come back, but it has not come back. That place is called liminal space, a space that doesn't belong anywhere. It's an in-between space. I want you to imagine a liminal space that comes unexpectedly, and it's open-ended, and you don't know when it will close, or in the disciples' case, even if it will ever close. Now, when Jesus was crucified, he was almost the only person who seems not to have been caught off guard. Once he was buried, all of Jesus' disciples and close followers hunkered down in their homes, not knowing what to do or what would happen next. Even Easter morning was a strange space. The disciples did not know what it meant or how to process Jesus being alive again because life did not return to normal. Now, the night before Jesus died, he had explained what was about to happen, and he promised his followers that though they would be grief-stricken for a time, their joy would return. And he had reassured them he had to go, that only then could he send the Holy Spirit. And he had guaranteed that where he was going, they would one day follow. And he had promised them peace, union with God, and the legacy of love. I want you to picture the shock they were feeling, how unsettling what Jesus had to say really was, the upheaval they were feeling as they were given more and more strange news. Try to imagine that. Jesus was watching their faces, and finally he said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Notice what Jesus did not do. He did not berate them for not understanding. He did not say, be very productive while they were sheltered in place waiting for him. He did not push them to new spiritual heights. They would be in the midst of trauma and turmoil for the next two months. And their lives were about to be profoundly changed forever. And that's how it is when life gets turned upside down. Parts of your brain shut down in order for you to just get through what's happening. You and I are not able to fully process a lot of what's happening around us during the ordeal. And we can feel numb, out of touch, 
Our lives don't feel completely real. Some people react to this by becoming hypervigilant or anxious. Others by becoming somewhat depressed, not able to really do a lot of anything. And Jesus had known what they were heading into, what the effect of the cross would have on them, as well as the hard days that lay ahead. Instead of pushing them, Jesus comforted them. He prayed for them. He gave them words of shalom and reassurance and courage. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. The hour is coming, he said to them. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each one to your home. And he said, I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. Take courage, Jesus had said to them with his gentle kindness and overflowing love. I have conquered the world. Just getting by emotionally and functionally is okay when life is upended. Lowering expectations and being gracious to yourself and gracious to the people around you is right and good. Jesus is our example. Now every year you and I have celebrated Easter knowing exactly how the story was going to turn out. We fly through Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and Holy Saturday all the while thinking about Easter Sunday. But Jesus' followers did not have that. They did not know victory was already growing in Jesus' dark grave. They had no idea what the next 40 days would hold. All they knew was the grief and loss of everything they'd held dear for the last three years. That is liminal space. And you and I are living in that space right now, that place in between things, we are experiencing in some way a part of what Jesus' followers experienced then. Waiting. Our lives on pause. Having lost much of what we hold dear. Not knowing what our world will be like when we finally get to emerge again. Even after Jesus rose again from the dead, those incredible days of tears turning to joy, even that was outside of normal time. Luke described it this way when he wrote his transition chapter between his gospel and the book of Acts. He said, after his suffering, Jesus presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait, wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. And then came a second wave of grief. Because before their very eyes, Jesus left them once again. And it is at that moment of brokenness and vulnerability that chaos that God's spirit can begin to work. And that is what was happening for those in the upper room, shredded with grief, 
over the loss of their beloved Jesus and the life that they had with him. The roller coaster of emotion from the cross to the grave to his astounding resurrection and the sweet, sweet days of being with him again. And then the shocking and seemingly sudden ascension where he truly seemed to have left them bereft. Yet he had told them to wait. Go to the upper room, he had said, the room where he had had his last meal with his followers, that Passover meal. The room where they had laughed and sung and drunk wine together until he had lifted that last cup, the cup of Hallel, the Hallelujah cup, representing the world to come. And he had said, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so stunned and numb, they had taken themselves to Jerusalem, taken step after heavy step up the stairs to that room full of remembered love and joy and anticipation. And there they sheltered in place. There they sat and prayed and waited for when they could step back into their lives again. But it seems something was happening inside them as they waited. Something powerful, yet unseen. And they began to understand what Jesus had spent 40 days teaching them. The meaning of the resurrection. It is by his spirit that God brings to life what was killed. God raises up what was dead. God brings back what we think we lost forever. Later, Paul would explain the resurrection. It's the most important doctrine of the Christian faith. It proves Jesus' deity and what his sacrifice for sin has done for us. It's complete. God accepted it. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, the whole structure of Christianity collapses. If he isn't risen, we won't rise from the dead either. We stay dead. If Jesus isn't risen, all the apostles are liars and Christianity is one big scam. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then God has been terribly misrepresented. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, faith in Christ is totally pointless. There's nothing to have faith in. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, we really are the most to be pitied. Because, as Paul pointed out, we can never really know peace or joy or even happiness, for that matter. Because underneath it all would be the low, ominous thrum of our own incompatibility with God. Knowing what we know about holiness and purity not a day would go by without dreading the thought of God coming with his cleansing wrath to clear the cosmos of all that corrupts. But Jesus is risen. And because this is true, we can count on being resurrected when Jesus returns for us. We can count on death finally being conquered finally being destroyed, along with sin and corruption and evil and all the rest of it. 
As proof, Paul cited many respected eyewitnesses to Jesus' bodily resurrection. In fact, according to the Gospels, and to Paul, and to Luke, that list includes Mary of Magdala, Mary the mother of James, Joanna, Salome, all the other women who were there, Cleopas and his companion on the way to Emmaus, several times to the disciples in various groupings, to Peter, to Jesus' own brother James, to Thomas along with the rest of the disciples, 500 people in one gathering, many times to those who traveled with him between Galilee and Jerusalem, 40 days of intensive teaching for 120 people, the disciples and Jesus' closest followers, and finally even to Paul himself. You know what? The earliest Christians did not just endorse Jesus' teachings. They were convinced with every fiber of their being that they had seen Jesus themselves, that Jesus was physically alive after his crucifixion. They traveled with him. They touched him. They heard his voice. They listened to his teaching. They spent times in conversation with him. They felt his breath. They felt his touch. They cooked meals with him and ate with him. That's what transfixed their hearts and minds. That is how they received Jesus' living spirit at Pentecost. That's what changed their lives and started the church. Every single follower was willing to be martyred for their belief. James, Jesus' brother, and Saul of Tarsus, they were both hardened skeptics. And when Jesus came to them, appeared to them physically, that he had risen from the dead, they too were willing to be martyred for their belief. And then Pentecost happened. And Jesus gave his spirit, and in them he was glorified on that day. The first five weeks after Jesus' resurrection, 10,000 Judeans became believers in the resurrected Messiah. And of the volumes of material that we have to this day, papyri and inscriptions that have been discovered by archaeologists, not even one person from that time tried to refute the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. The best they could do, even Josephus, the best they could do was say it must have been magic. Jesus has promised that he is going to return in the twinkling of an eye. The old body is going to pass away in that moment. We are going to be raised up to a new body. We're not going to be like we are now. Here's how Paul said it. He said, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed because of wheat or maybe some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, it has its own body. Not all flesh is alike. But there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. I mean, there's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Indeed, stars differ from star to star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in is dishonor. It's raised to glory. What is sown in weakness? It is raised in power. 
It is sown in physical body. What is raised is a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. And so you see, you and I, we're like seeds right now. When we're planted in the ground, in death, we change. At Jesus' return, so said Jesus, so said Paul, so said John, so said Peter. The seed will disappear as the new body grows up from what was locked inside the seed. And now you and I are in a time of waiting. And in a sense, this is what being a Christian is all about. We're in the world, but we're not of it. We're part of a new kingdom and a new people. And we're waiting for our king to return. Waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. And while we wait, something is happening. It's unseen, but oh, it's powerful. And when our waiting is done, and when we walk back into our lives and into the changed world, we will have the gift Jesus sent his beloved ones, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father Jesus said will send in my name. Jesus said he will teach you everything and will remind you of all that I have said to you. Now at that time, Jesus' followers had no way of understanding what Jesus was saying. Even as they sheltered in place, they could not make sense of it. Even as they waited for what seemed to them an unending time, they could not process what Jesus had told them. They didn't understand it until it happened, and then they understood. And when those people, those 120 women and men, walked out of those doors, by the mighty, wonder-working power of the Holy Spirit of Christ, they changed the world. Now you and I may not really be able to process the circumstances of what our waiting means either. We're in it right now. We are still in it. And we're just getting by, and that's okay. Jesus gives us his peace and his comfort and his courage and his understanding and he is doing something powerful right now you and i can't see it but it's happening nonetheless and at some point our waiting will be finished and may it be that when we go back out of our doors we will be part of something huge that god by his mighty wonder-working power will be doing by his spirit changing the world again Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, this part is hard. And yet we rejoice that we can live even in some small part in that liminal space that your followers lived in and to be able to wait with bated breath for what's going to happen next, for we know it's going to be good because you are good. Oh, God. We know that your kingdom has come, and we know you, our king, are on your throne. Oh, raise us up, we pray, to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Amen.